strangers. Hi, Ed. Vicki, it's so good to see you. You know, Ed, I, I really miss you. I don't know if you realized how much we saw each other in real life before COVID. Our friend Phil Rosenthal's and lots of other places at our home, everywhere. I see you a lot and I love it. Yeah, we used to go to the New Year's Eve at, at Henry Javlum's and we used to play ping pong at Paula Poundstone's and pizza and movie nights at Phil's. Yeah, it was a lot of that. And it's um, it's been a long time. I haven't seen you. <sighs> so catch me up, Ed. How have you been handling this whole pandemic thing? You know, there's so many people that had a real problem with this, obviously, health-wise in many ways, financially, and I am somehow lucky that I, I am not one of them. You know, I, I have a nice home that I can sequester here when such things happen, but not everybody has those resources, of course, so it, when something like that is going on, you try to be of help in any way you can so that other people that are in trouble, you know, the LA Food Bank and other places like that were ways to help, the Motion Picture Fund, Help a lot of people in the movie business, not just actors, of course, but grips, electricians, makeup, hair people. Everybody was suddenly without a paycheck for a while. So those who were lucky before all this happened, you know, most of us, everybody I knew tried to do something and uh, that helped a bit. But uh, we had no problem here in Studio City. Well, I'm happy to hear that. And I know that you were also driving long distances to get, well, well I think you do that anyway because you, you are saving. Yeah, I've it. done it long before the pandemic. It's just a way to, rather than use a bunch of jet fuel, I'm very careful about not buying gasoline at the pump when I drive around LA. Why would I do it for a long trip, you know, a plane? Now, once in a while, Vicki, I, ha I have to be for work or something crazy right. important, Monday in LA, and then I have to be Tuesday in New York. You can't do that in, you know, an electric car or anything like it. So then once every few years, I have to get on a plane and I do, but I, that's quite rare. So you were working during the pandemic, which also was unusual. I mean, now a lot of people have gotten back to work, but you must've been filming Better Call Saul, which is that running right now. That took a while to get back to that. That was a while, but of course, starting in March of 2020, nobody was working on anything. And then April, May, June, July. finally by July though, some people were saying, We've got some shooting. There was nothing going on in California, of course. Right. But in Nevada, there was a bit of work happening with these strict COVID rules. They had a folding table set out front with COVID testing kits that were like 15 minute or something like it. 15 minute results. It was a. I can't remember how they did it. Might have. I think it was a blood prick thing or something. It was right. Very, you know, primitive. So you do that, and they say you're fine. Go in and work and. Two people, not in our show, but the show that the same company did before that, two people tested positive. They went, back up, go away, go back to the hotel and wait for the word. So it didn't spread at all. And that's been my experience. A few people have tested positive around me in these years since 2020 on something like Young Sheldon. Some people tested positive. The, the, what the, the rules that they have in place are such, it didn't go beyond that. Nobody, including me, got it working on Young Sheldon or Better Call Saul or any of those shows. By the time we did Saul, there were really robust COVID, you know, principles and, and guidelines in place, and we all adhered to it. And they were good about it. You know, you take it off to drink and have a, a, you know, a snack, what have you. Then you forget to put it on, either intentionally or not. They come over, Mr. Bagley, please. I'm sorry, we're going to have to ask to put the mask. On. Of course, I'm sorry. You know, I want to play by the rules, and I did. But them doing that, them being kind of strict with all that stuff, I think is why it didn't spread wide 
in the movie business when people started to go back. Well, and so did you have no fear at like when when the when the pandemic first started and we were in lockdown and stuff, were you doing like, were you ordering groceries? Were you going into the grocery store? What, what were you doing at the beginning of the pandemic? I was pretty cautious, but I was kind of zen about it in a way too. I somehow had this idea that I would be fine if I got it. That was proven true just four weeks ago when I did get it. Oh. But by then I was, of course, fully vaccinated and boosted and everything. And and the, the strain by then was not as harmful, they say, to a lot of people. I think that's what's going on because there's less people on respirators and things like that. It's spreading right. like wildfire now, as you know, but it's more cases, but less real serious damage of people dying, you know, so much so they have refrigerated, you know, cadaver vehicles outside the emergency room. If you remember all that. Oh my God, so, yeah. Well, that was very alarming, of course. So I played by all the rules, whatever they were, and they changed a lot. No masks, yes masks. I went whichever way they discovered new ways to make that better, I, I did it. But then by July, as I said, in 2020, mm -hmm. some filming and I felt safe doing it and it was, and I still did, you know, kept the mask on outdoors and indoors, whatever that was when it changed. And uh, we'll continue to do what I need to again if things tighten up again, but I felt I was gonna be okay and I somehow was correct. Uh, I was okay when I got it four weeks ago. I was sick for all of 12 hours. Okay, so tell me, so, all right, I'm COVID crazy. And a lot of the people who watch this, I lead the band of COVID crazies. So I have a lot of curiosity. So did you know right away you were sick? How did you know you were sick? I started to get a sore throat on the 26th of this very June, just last month. Okay. I had my son in town and he had his new grandson in town who was not vaccinated, not any of that, because he's nine months old. Right, of course. I don't know if that had anything to do with it. We'll never know. It doesn't matter. This isn't the blame game, blame right. babies or anybody. I'm not right. I'm saying, I'm trying, we're all trying to figure the vector of what happened. It's all quite mystifying. But so then midway through the, the day on the 26th of June, Sunday, I started to feel, I had a sore throat. I started to get, oh boy, a sore I went, no, this has happened three or four times since March of 2020. Sure. People get a sore throat but it never went, and this one went on to the next level. It started to feel like razor blades in my throat. And okay, but again, people get bad sore throats. I haven't had this since somewhere back in 2019 or 18. I haven't had a bad sore throat, but I got one. But then that four in the morning on the 27th, Monday the 27th, I woke up. It hurt so bad in my throat. I did a COVID test, a PCR test, a DNA test, the $80 kind of test that you can get, and it came back positive. And I've done many of those tests. And, and that was the first time I ever had a positive. And did you do the Paxlovid? Did you? Very good question. That's exactly what I did. I have a very good doctor. I went to Dr. David Kipper. I've known since the 80s, early 80s. No, I've known How since soon did you get on the, the Paxlovid? I didn't want to bother him at four in the morning, of course. <laughs> I didn't want to bother him at five, six, or seven. But yeah. at nine, I felt comfortable calling him. Got a hold of his office. Got a hold of him by text. Within one hour... Wow. Oh, no. Yeah, I, I might have gotten a hold of him by text at eight. He had things ready to go by nine o'clock. The prescriptions were waiting for me at CVS. I went in, I did them, still had razor blades in my throat at 10 o'clock, all gone. Vicky, Stop. Gone. Oh, come, Vicky, no. gone. Get I'm sorry. out of here. Paxlovid, erythromycin, um, some sort of prednisone kind of a thing. Right. Magic mouthwash. I don't know what it really is. They call it magic mouthwash. Mouth, rinse your mouth out with this stuff and your throat gargle and spit it out or whatever. And uh, 
I don't th I think that was it. Did those things in combination. That was the cocktail. It worked. I was I was sick 12 hours. And one hour after I had the meds, I was not sick. Now, I'm a liar right there when I say I wasn't sick. I had a fog for about a week. I'm like, uh, I was a little foggy. I'm a pretty foggy at this point anyway, at my age and condition. But I was even more foggy. What? Somebody at the door? I was a little, I mean, not too bad, but I was, I was foggy. I thought, oh, I'm fine. I said that for three or four days. I went, no, no, wait a second. I'm not totally fine. I feel a little foggy here. Yeah. But that went away. Like today, I'm... And days and weeks ago, I became less foggy and less, and now I feel pretty normal. Did you lose your sense of taste or smell or anything? I lost that back in 2004. Stop. I'm not kidding. I lost half my sense of taste and smell. I got some sort of a virus or some sort of neurological thing that occurred. I had trouble with my balance. I had a lot of things. We didn't know what it was. And then there's been discoveries over the years. And, uh, you know, but I'm, I'm doing fine now. My health is good. But I lost a lot. I can still smell most things, but I can't smell the way I used to. Uh, before can you taste? Because that impacts enjoyment. Yeah, taste food. too. Taste and smell. Lost half of it. Had trouble with balance. We took off from LAX. I was going to Vancouver to shoot on a show in 2004. This is when I know I knew I had a problem. We we're about a thousand feet off the runway, and the plane plummets to the port side, Vicky. It just falls from the sky. And so I, as you would, if you were next to me, you would have said the same thing. I went, "Oh boy." <laughs> And then everybody ahead of me in the cabin turned around and walked like, we got a problem. Because nobody was falling out of the sky except me. Only I was strapped in my chair. I wasn't even falling. I was convinced the plane was falling to the port to the left side. It was not. It just it literally felt like, whoa. It was all inner ear stuff. It I was a, you. It was me. The plane wow. wasn't doing anything. Wow. Wow. And then That's I got to Vancouver and I had a shoot. And I had extreme nausea and what have you and all this stuff. And I thought, how am I going to be able to stand on a set? I went to some doctor, he gave me just some scopolamine or, you know, like, a, what do you call it? Dramamine kind of stuff. Right. I did that and I was fine. Wow. Inner ear things will get you every time. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. And, and so, and did you have a rebound from the Paxlovid? Because we, we have mutual friends that have had like a rebound thing from it. Did you, that didn't happen to you? Uh, Tell me what you mean by rebound. Like they, they felt better after they started taking the medication, but then like a week later, they got like really bad COVID symptoms again. <clears throat> oh, I did not get that. I did not Excellent. get that at all. I, I got better within an hour, foggy. I didn't even realize I was foggy for a while. I was so glad to not have razor blades in my throat. Went, I feel great. But I went, no, I'm a little foggy. That lasted a week or two. But now I've been pretty clear for a couple of weeks. It's been about... It's been nearly four weeks now since I had, I think. Yeah. Oh, that's so, I'm so glad that you're, you're back. Yeah, I'm to very lucky, good very, health. very lucky in so many ways. Um, so, okay, so now when the, when the pandemic started, you're always working. So I assume that you were either in the middle of something or had something on the books that did something go away because of COVID? Nothing went away. There was nothing. I had finished all the young Sheldon. I'd finished Bless This Mess. That wound up being the last season of that show, sadly, anyway. Mm -hmm. Uh Young Better Call Saul that weren't what, shooting for quite a while. That was shut down because of COVID. And they, I wasn't in an episode when it got shut down. I was done with all my work. I really had nothing that I was halfway through or third or a day through or owed one day or anything like that. I literally just stayed in my backyard and in my house, grew the best vegetable garden <laughs> I've grown in many years, did every honeydew around the house. I was 
asked to do for years, all the lawn chairs and stuff that needed a new <laughs> horizontal slat cut out, a little carpentry work, all that got done. My office is very organized. <laughs> I can lead you around with a computer and show you, but it became even more organized. The kitchen, the pantry, everything. I got a lot of stuff done as most people in America and around the world did. You know, that's funny though. I, I actually found myself kind of paralyzed by it. I, I went live every day during the first couple of years of COVID to be of service to people, but I got nothing. I didn't clean out a drawer. I didn't do anything like that, which is crazy. But I was kind of paralyzed by it a little bit, I think. I was weirdly zen about it. I went, this is my time, I'm 72. I've had an incredible life. I'm not kidding. If I die tomorrow, I hope I don't, but if I die tomorrow, Vicky, I have not been cheated. You know, I have not been cheated by a minute, by a day, by an hour, nothing. So I, that was my feeling about it, but I was, I somehow thought I'd be okay. And I was oddly correct. I just kind of tried to be of help for others and stayed here and played by the rules as they changed. And, uh, We'll do it again. If somebody says you got to do this now again, I'll do just about anything reasonable, you know, to keep other people from getting sick and to a lesser degree, I suppose, myself as well. So what, what is it like now when you go on a set? Because things kind of relaxed quite a bit. And maybe they not have now. relaxed. They might tighten up again now with the new surge that's happening. But so the I'm, good thing. Yeah. Not the good thing. The less bad thing about the surge Though it's surging again and people are getting sick and getting razor blades in the throat and stuff like that, there's not that many people on a respirator or stuff like right. that because of it. I'm, I'm sure it's happening out there. I don't mean to put bad information out there. There are probably people in respirators in LA County because of COVID right now. I'm just not one of them. And I, I've been to some emergency rooms for other reasons and I didn't see a, a lot of that kind of COVID activity in the halls or anywhere when I was there you know, uh, a few weeks ago. So I hope that continues that it's mild. And I hope also in addition, these other variants and strains start to get weaker and hurt less people in very, you know, the meaningful way that it's been hurting people and killing people, you know, these past couple of years. You know, they said recently though, that the hospitalizations are going up again, that there are so many more cases than we know about because so many people are home testing. Right. So they're saying there are like a hundred thousand new cases a day, you know, that, and that, hospitalizations are actually 50% up. This strain of Omicron, the B5 that you had probably is uh, been pretty hard on some, we have some mutual friends that got really sick actually this go around. You're very lucky. I'm very happy that you had that experience and the Paxlovid was so effective for you, the other, right. the cocktail. But so are, are you more relaxed now that you've had it, you've been there, you've done that. Do you feel less, vulnerable? Well, you didn't feel particularly vulnerable before, did you? I, I didn't. And now I know, of course, I can get it again, yeah. you know, depending on which if I had the A or the B strain of that particular uh, strain that's out there now, uh, I could get it in three weeks or I could get it in three months, depending on which one I get, get it again. But uh, I have a feeling it would be milder the next time I get it if I do get it again. That's what they're saying is most likely Again, it's a weird virus. Lots of things can happen. We're now we seem to be in kind of live with it mode. Live with it not being just let's all rip off our masks and you know get in a jacuzzi and, and kiss. <laughs> well, I'm not sure we're ready for everything. So we need to you know be careful, but live a life too. 
So, okay, so what is, what is living a life like for you and Rochelle now, Ed? Are, are you back to what normal living, are you living fairly much the way you were before the Let pandemic? Let me get a visual aid, I got it right here. <laughs> a visual aid, I Here's what I normal was. <laughs> Go ahead. Here it is. This is, I buy these by the case of 10. They're not cheap, I think they're 80 bucks a piece. Yeah. But we'd have people, we started to have some people over Everybody got tested, you know, including me. And I was, I was like some sort of spy novel. I would do the testing, what have you, then place the result that says <laughs> negative down to today's newspaper, the LA Times. So I knew I'm like, this is a test from a month ago. I'm going to get everybody sick. I'm going to be typhoid married, damn it. I'm going to, here's my test. <laughs> I wasn't doing that. <clears throat> and so I, I would do it right next to the, the current issue of the LA Times. <laughs> so that would prove it was today's test and then people would feel comfortable coming over and nobody got it in that way. It's possible. I don't know. Do you know how you so, got it? I, you know, I'll never know how I got it. I'm not really sure. I certainly started to go out. My dear friend Howard Hessman died. My dear friend David L. Lander died. Yeah. I went to those memorials and you go to the, those memorials. Most of the people I knew and kept they kept their distance and kept masks, but there are other people I didn't know at those memorials. Ed, Ed, can I get a picture? Let me get a selfie. And they're right next to you, literally two inches from your nostrils and mouth, somebody that you never met before. Nice people. I'm not ragging on people here, but it just suddenly you wonder, have they even been vaccinated? I hope so. Have they been tested, vaccinated, anything in the past six months? Who knows? So I thought I was going to get it from that. I did not, as it turns out, get it from any of those kind of encounters. Hmm. I'm, I'm not sure. It could be my grandson because you can't vaccinate a nine month old, of course. Right. And so, because they were all in an airport together coming here. And then, yeah. And another you can't put a little mask on a nine month old either, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. And I was kissing them and everything, of course. Of course. But then nobody else got it. My <laughs> daughter, my daughter-in-law actually got it a week after they got back. So that was a was that the same thing I had? Did I then give it to her after I got it from whoever? Who knows? Who knows? They're all behaving. And my grown daughter, my 43-year-old daughter, she tested negative constantly. DNA, good test like this one. But she had, she had several of the signs. It was like she had it, but she kept testing negative. So what does that mean? I don't know. I know a lot of instances of that. Who knows? It's all all right. quite mysterious. All right. So I've I've like ruined all this, wasted all this time on COVID stuff, only because I'm personally curious and the people who watch my show are curious too. But now we got over that. So what so are you you're back to sort of life? And so what does the work look like now, Ed? Is is the work different post-pandemic? Is there more of it, less of it? What's going on work-wise? There's been no shortage of work for me since July of 2020 or long before that. There's I'm never very been lucky, Walter Cocker. <laughs> I'm a very lucky geezer. I've been working like crazy for many years now. I started in 1967 and after St. Elsewhere, I've never had a struggle. You know, I've had some years that were a little more dry or less robust, let's say, than other years, but never had a bad year since 1982 when I got lucky and got that show. But recently, it's been, there's been a lot of work. Okay, let's talk about, we're we're going to go back, but okay, so now there's Better Call Saul, Young Sheldon, what else is, was cooking I did Mr. Mayor, I did a few episodes of that for my dear friend, Ted Danson, I love Ted and love working with him, and love him dearly, and Mary Steenburgen, I love those, 
too so much. Um, did that. I did a movie with David O. Russell. I can't talk about that. There's an NDA, but that's going to be very exciting. He's so brilliant. I love him so much, David mm. O. Russell, and uh, with a great cast that I cannot mention, but you hear a lot more about that soon. Uh, but I've just been work, work, work. I just got and off what's, of the what's right now? Oh, okay. Right now, I, I work on Young Sheldon um, in a week, a week from tomorrow. Yeah, a week from tomorrow. I start on Young Sheldon, do two days, 28th, 29th and Young Sheldon. And then I've got, uh, there's a movie I just got offered that shoots up in Oregon. I'll probably do that. There's a So now if you, if you get work in Oregon, are you gonna drive up there? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. I had a job, Vicki, I had a speaking engage engagement in Reston, Virginia, which is basically a suburb of, D it is a suburb of DC. It's right at the end of one of the uh, Metro lines. And I drove there. I had to go <laughs> shoot in Texas, I drove there. Rochelle talks about, I hear about this. So, so how do, how do you manage now you just go stop in a hotel or you do whatever, but when it was like the height of COVID and everything, did you feel comfortable to just go into a hotel along the way? And I didn't travel much during the height of COVID, you know, because of all of that, <clears throat> I started to, there was a certain amount of staying at hotels where COVID was still fairly robust a couple mm -hmm. years ago when I was doing Better Call Saul and some other shows out of town, doing Queer as Folk in New Orleans, New Orleans and doing other things. Uh, a movie, I did this movie in Fort Worth. Uh, so, you know, I just stay at the hotel, mask when they told me to mask, you know, not mask when they didn't mask and just did it and drove cross country. And it, it's kind of a fun way to get cross country because you don't see it just up at 31,000 feet. You're down on the ground, you meet a lot of lovely people and you know you stop and eat here and there and you uh you know it, it's great i charge my car okay i was going to ask you because you're charging your car how far how how many miles can you go before you have to stop and charge i got the long range pa package on the tesla so i can go nearly 400 miles i can easily go huh. 350 miles and then so, how long do you have to stop to charge that's the beautiful thing of these superchargers, and they're all across America. You want to go the 10, the 20, the 40, the 70, the 90, or the 5, the 35, the 55, the 95, any highway, major highway, even some like 395 up to Mammoth kind of roads have tremendous amount of charging stations wow. and a lot of chargers at each station. So you're not like waiting for the guy to finish up. Right, you. right. So you, here's the way it works. What you do is you just put in the address where you're going in Reston, Virginia the address of the thing I was doing in Knoxville, Tennessee, the uh -huh. thing I was doing in Fort Worth. I just put in the hotel. I'm staying at the Hyatt in Knoxville or whatever it is. Put it in. It goes, boop, 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 boop. Okay, you're going to stop for breakfast at, not, they don't say breakfast, but at that hour, it means breakfast for me. I, I get on the road and it says you're going to stop in Needles, California. Wait a minute, what app are you putting this in? in, in the it's Tesla all in the car. Itself? It's a in Tesla app. You just put in the address. You push a button, you don't have to punch anything in, just go navigate, uh, Hyatt Regency, rest in Virginia, whatever the hell it is. Right. Do, 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 then it goes, okay, it comes up. You can see, okay, it wants me to stop in Needles, California. Then it wants me to have lunch in Flagstaff. It doesn't say have lunch, it just says stop again in Flagstaff and stop again in Gallup, New Mexico. That's how I get to Albuquerque. It decides, but hold on, it's not carved in stone. If I start going 80 or 85 miles an hour, Vicky, it's gonna right. go, Oh, no, 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 no. Really? You ain't stopping in Needles, baby. You got to stop in Barstow now 
and charge for 15 minutes because you're you're speeding, dude, you know, whatever. <laughs> you want to use up that much power because the faster you go, it eats up more power. Because So what resistance. is it, what, what speed is it basing this distance on usually? It's basing on the way you drove the last 50 miles away oh. you begin to drive in the morning. You know, if you right away out of the gate start zooming and passing cars and gunning and gunning and gunning, <laughs> and gunning it, it's going to give you, it's not going to, you won't make it to needles. It doesn't want you to push it. So it's going to have you stop in Barstow. There's some wiggle room. It doesn't. I was going to say, has it ever been wrong? Has it ever caught you high and dry? Never. I've run out of juice in electric cars, but the 1990 primitive, 1989 or 90 primitive kind of conversion cars, I've never run out in my Toyota Route 4 or my Nissan Leaf or this Tesla. You got to really, Vicky, I'm going to say this and it's true. You got to want to run out. You got to really go, <laughs> no, I'm not going to pay attention to that message. Now there's a little freaking turtle up there. You're going to slow down. You're going to, it slows you down finally if you keep going that. It'll slow you down. And so you got to really not pay attention for a long time. No, you must charge the next five miles. It's really 10. Must charge the next five. You got to then not only go past the five that it's telling you, you got to go past the 10 that they're not telling you. You got to really want to run right, out. Right, right. And it's going to give you options. It's going to keep giving you options. Totally. And if you somehow don't go to Barstow, as they're telling you to right. have you, you're not going to make it to needles maybe. So then you're going to have to find, it'll show you like a little 240 volt charger that's in ding dong, you know, <laughs> desert stop somewhere and you stop there. And now you got to take a while because it's not a fast charger. You have no one but yourself to blame. Right. I told you that you're going to make it to needles. You wanted to go 90 and then you wouldn't <laughs> charge in Barstow the way they told you. Now you're going to have to sit for three hours at Desert Summit, whatever, at a shell station and have, you know, tacos for a couple hours. So, Ed, let's say you're going to Texas and it would normally take, I don't know, two days to get the, it, it. How how much is added to your trip because you're stopping to charge, do you think? Very little. And here's why. When If I'm driving cross country, which mm -hmm. I have done long before I had this car, I'm going to spend a half hour or maybe 35, 40 minutes having a nice relaxed breakfast and doing the crossword anyway. Right. That's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to right. race through it. I'm there 40 minutes. At 40 minutes, not only am I, do I have enough to make it the flag, I've got, I'm topped off. At 40 minutes, you can get 80% of your charge in 30 minutes. Wow. If you've got 40, 45 minutes relaxing over breakfast, relaxing over lunch, taking a 45 minute lunch or 50 minute lunch, you're going to be topped off and fly. You can make it all the way to Gallup easy peasy. But if you start to speed after that, whatever you out in those flat highways in Arizona, you go, I'm going to punch it. There's no cops around. You, then you're going to, you're going to go into, what is it called? Hobart or some town like that. You're going to have to stop there. It'll tell you, they're not like a school mom. They don't really scold you. I'm making that part up. And just better, you better stop here. So Ed, um, tell for, for those who are meeting you this way for the first time listening today, how did all this activism, how did this, 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 this conservation, this environmental, uh, how did this, was your father, I know the answer to this question, but tell us, did you grow up with this kind of mentality of conserving uh, of this is part of your DNA, isn't it? It really is. My mother had that behavior as well, but I wasn't raised with her. I 
they split up when I was one, so I didn't really know her till years later. But I was like her in a way, but more importantly, living with my dad, he was a great, great influence in so many ways. And he was a conservative, and I, you might or might not know I am not, but he was a great man. He was a conservative that liked to conserve. He didn't use the word environmentalist much, but he was one. Turn off the lights, turn off the water, save string, save tin foil. You didn't waste. You just didn't waste, you know, because he was, he lived through the Great Depression. He was the son oh. of Irish immigrants. That's just the way you lived. Right. And so, and he also was great. Another way, I used to complain about the smog. That's the main thing that got me involved environmentally was living with the smog, Vicky. It was so horrible back then. It just choked you. It was, you couldn't run, you couldn't play, you couldn't, you had to just sit there. It was very bad. And so I would complain about it, say, I'm, I hate the smog too, Eddie, but what are you doing about it? Well, you go do something, make, go build or help somebody build an electric car, you know, go testify before the smog district or whatever they called it back then, the AQMD, the precursor to that is called the pollution control district or something. I can't remember many years ago, do something, get involved and try to make a difference. I'm interested in what you're saying no to, I hear you, but what are you saying yes to? That was a very good life lesson. Wow. Just so, that thing. Was, so was your father an activist in his way of service in his time, in his way? Not really. He was a big union man, you know, even though he was conservative. He, that was very common back then to be also a union person. Mm -hmm. That kind of changed in the 80s a bit. To very Not as many union people were fond of, uh, or people on the right weren't as fond of right. unions. But, um, but he was, and he was, uh, you know, he was active with the union. He went out there and picketed and what have you, and went on the strike for residuals. Because before that, after, you know, six runs of Gilligan's Island, it wasn't like there were low residuals. There was nothing. After they ran it the sixth or the 10th time, whatever it was, you know, that was just the end of it. So they, they pushed for more, you know, like lifetime residual. They'd be small, but they'd be something. And uh, got a better structure for the for reruns and what have you for residuals for actors and a better pension plan and a better health plan and what have you. So he believed in that stuff. And he died within a few days of the first Earth Day in 1970. So I did a lot of this stuff to honor him as much as anything, you know, because he was and now my meal ticket was gone. I didn't have him to rely on financially. So I had to do all this stuff in kind of his way, a, a conservative way, if you could, because I didn't want to go into debt buying solar panels I couldn't afford. I didn't want to go into debt buying a fancy electric car I couldn't afford. They didn't really exist back then. Right. But a cheap electric car existed. And I found one for $950. I drove this electric car around. Not only was it cheaper to fuel by plugging it into the wall, it was much, much, much cheaper to service because my service was literally zero the whole time I had it. No tune-up, oil change, fan belt, radiator flush, valve job, smog check, gas tank. You listed all the things you don't have anymore in a car. It, maintenance is usually very, very low wow. on an electric car. And everybody's talking about the batteries you replace them will be a zillion dollars. I've had a bunch of hybrids that have battery packs, electrics. I replaced one after eight years, nine years, I think, on the RAV4. I replaced one battery pack. One of the hybrids we had, the first one we bought in the year 2000, needed a pack replaced uh, after a while. But none of the, they're all still running. All these cars from the 90s and beyond are still running. And Ed, you know how much money you and Rochelle are saving right now. Do you know we drove past the gas station two days ago and I said, oh, $6.25 a gallon, that's a bargain. When $6.25 a gallon looks like a bargain, something is very wrong. 
very, very yeah. long. It's, it's, it's crazy. I haven't bought fuel in a long, long time, and I don't need to, you know, with these, the range of the electric cars now, the charging infrastructure such as it is, you know, I've got and the solar on my rooftop, and I, I charge my car, by the way, driving cross country, I pay zero for charging, because I got the lifetime charging pa package as part of my, you know, uh, autopilot and the whole thing. If you got the long range battery pack, you would get free charging for life, and that's what I have. It's, un it's fantastic. So part of this with your father was uh, the, the depression mentality and the, the, the exactly. conservation. But for you, honoring your father, but also you have a tremendous commitment to service all through your life in every aspect of your life. What do you, where do you think that came from? What, 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 where is, that what comes is that? to my sister, I think, more than anybody. I really... This is weird. I didn't think about it until you just asked in that way of service, the way usually, and you do, do the things for the environment. What's that? Well, that's about the smog, I say. Well, that's about my dad. That's true. But service, that's my sister. She, she's 11 months older than me. So we're Irish twins. It's the term they usually use to designate kids 11 months apart. That's about as close as you can be age-wise. Great lady. Loved her my whole life. She, for so many reasons, you know, she became a, uh, like a Goldwater fan, I think in 64, she was in Young Americans for Freedom. I wanted to join, I was too young, it wouldn't let me. She became a Democrat, I became a Democrat. She went to People's Park in Berkeley and was, you know, a service there or what have you. I watched it on TV, I didn't <laughs> do anything about that. So she was always involved and active. Then she moved back to Massachusetts where her husband was from and they uh, lived there and raised five kids, five wonderful kids successfully. and. Uh, and she was always on the school committee and helping out in every way, different political things and non-political things. So I never really thought it through, but that's my sister. Well, that was a wonderful influence you were fortunate to have. And Definitely. okay, so Ed, we you talked a moment about a moment ago about it starting all in like 1969. How 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 did all, I know? Okay, so your father, an Academy Award-winning actor. Sweet bird of youth. Oh, please, 12 Angry Men. Such a brilliant actor. Brilliant, brilliant actor. And so I assume, and I think I know this, that you as a youngster got to go on set and, and ex that was your life as a young as a young boy. You you were surrounded by the Hollywood sort of thing. Yes, I was. We lived in the San Fernando Valley here in California, but he also had a home. Uh, another modest home, about 1,700 square foot home, two bedroom home in Merrick, New York, out in Long Island. So we grew up, we went to grade school out in Long Island. We came back to California where we were both born, my sister and I. Uh, we came back here in 63 for like high school and then college, and then we were here for the rest of our lives. But we were, you know, we, you know, we were around the movie industry when we were in California and we were around this you know, theatrical industry, you know, stage plays and what have you. My dad did a lot of theater and I got to go visit him backstage at different shows on Broadway. And more importantly, I went on the road with him a few times when he would do a play in Boston, then he would do a play oh, wow. in Washington, New Haven. And I go with him to these different theaters when they were, you know, breaking a play in and opening it out of town and what have you. He did plays like uh, Look Homeward Angel, this wonderful play that I remember, uh, being around backstage a lot for advising consent, mm. wonderful play from the 60s too, that I was, I saw 
a hundred times because I was with them a lot during that time when they're on the road with that show. And uh, and on set, I fell in love more than anything. I love the stage, of course, but films and television, to be on the set with all that equipment, all that gear and learning what that does and this dimmer does that. Occasionally the local 728 electrician guys say, get up here, get up here in the car. This didn't you didn't you, uh, this, didn't you work a camera for a while? You did something. I became a cameraman, but be, kind of because of this, the story I'm about to tell, I haven't thought of in a hundred years, but I remember one day I was doing a show called Slattery's People. Oh yeah, Richard sure. Uh -huh. Black and white show and they had these big Mitchell BNC cameras and they dolly in some time for reaction on Richard Fenner, my dad had come in on this close up or whatever. And there's a Camry dollar in that have to be a 728 local 728 electrician guy on a dimmer switch, they would slowly dim the light down as it got closer. So it didn't, as the camera got closer, there's something called an obi light, a light right above the camera. It would give a nice little eye light and a little in the face. It was a very nice thing, very flattering light, but you had to dim it in just the right way as the camera got closer. So I was watching the guy do it. He says, get up here. You do this take, you do it. He let me do it, not doing a rehearsal, doing a take. Oh, wow. I couldn't believe. So suddenly I'm, operating this light and I did it. You couldn't see the light change, which is what you wanted. You don't want to see it, you want to see it stay the same. Right. You're dimming as they get in close. And it was like, I was hooked. I just, and I, <clears throat> yeah, I became a cameraman, not with IATSC, that's the larger union, the, the just a larger union. There was another union called NABET because I couldn't get in the IATSC. I tried, but I didn't put the right kind of effort into it. It was my fault as a young man not to do things right. But I got into NABET and they did like shows like Easy Rider. They did some low budget kind of movies like that. And they definitely did a lot of commercials. So I did like a Tidex K commercial and I did a, a different, you know, Breck hair product commercial and a MasterCard. I was an assistant cameraman. But, and, but this was, you had already started acting at this point, hadn't you? Exactly. And it, it kind of, my interest in cameras was always there. I wanted to direct one day. I wanted to be a cinematographer maybe that was as a result of getting into SAG at age 17 almost 18. I okay so tell us how you did that how did you get into SAG Ed? I got into SAG because I got a job on a show called My Three Sons with Fred <laughs> McMurray and these three wonderful guys it was a lovely show I got a day on that but again I had no concept of at, at the time I had no concept of it how did I get that interview Vicky? I got it because I was Ed Begley's son. Okay. No question. They didn't just say, here's a blonde kid off the street. He was wandering around the lot. Let's read him. I didn't know it. I went, wow, I got an audition. I got the part. Wait, and had, you, had, you, had you studied prior to this? Had you taken That's the other life? amazing thing. I've got to back up. I started going out on auditions at age 10. I auditioned for the part to, to be an understudy to Barry Gordon, the actor Barry Gordon, who was in a play called A Thousand Clowns a Tony award-winning play. I went into audition for the understudy. I went in there, thank you so much. And uh, we'll get back to you. Got no work, of course. Why? Vicky, I had zero training. I literally uh -huh. thought that looks easy. My dad's a plumber. He gets his pipe and when you kind of fit the pipe together, right? Some of it's <laughs> copper and some of it's steel. Okay, what, I'll figure it out. Give me a job. I want to fit pipe. I had no training. You have to train, you have to apprentice. I had no concept. Finally, after years of that at age 16, I started taking years of that. <laughs> I did from age 10 to six. I went on a probably 10 interviews, 10 waste of time for the poor people. Interviews. Did you have an agent? How were you getting sent out on these things? Yeah, but like my dad's agent or a friend or who was an uh -huh. agent somehow with something like that. I, I 
answer you honestly, but I don't remember with this magic that happened because I was Ed Begley's son, but I went on these interviews. Wait, wait I'm, I'm interrupting you because did your dad ever like say, okay, put my son in this or give my son a role or did that ever No, happen? no, he no. refused to do that. He would not do that because number one, as it turns out, he didn't, I've had kids who wanted to be actors at different stages too. I have Hayden, one that wants it right now. I don't have the power to do that. I can't pick up the phone and say, give her anything. They would laugh at me. Have her come in an audition, maybe, but we don't know if your daughter can act. He didn't have the power to do that. And he didn't want to do that because he knew sure. I wouldn't appreciate it. He had done a version of that with my much older brother, Tom. They had a vaudeville act and other things. And at some point, Tom went, I never wanted to do that. What? I didn't want to do it. You made me do that. And I wanted to be out playing stickball with my friends. And you made me do it. And I Aww. didn't like it. Okay, I won't do that again. And he later, according to my dad, he said, Tom, years later, said, you know what? I want to do some acting again. My dad went, no, no, no. You said you didn't want it. That ship has sailed. And I don't want to get back and forth with you with this. So he definitely didn't want to do it with my sister and I, who got stills done by somebody. We talked somebody into taking our pictures and uh -huh. going up in a few commercial auditions, but neither she nor I got any work because we hadn't trained. <clears throat> I finally took some acting lessons at age 16. Then I got my first job. But here's where the delusion continues, Vicky. I got a job in My Three Sons, My Three Sons, and I literally thought, wow, I'm in SAG now. That phone's going to ring off the hook. Here we go. The calls are going to come in. Well, I got—I guess I got to wait till after it airs. Maybe it should be on the air first and other people see it, you know, crickets. And so then I started to now fully answer your question. I then went, hey, I like camera work. This isn't working out the way I'd hoped as an actor. I'll work as a cameraman, worked as a camera assistant, worked, oh, I got a job on lottery. This uh, little short subject thing that they did about that wonderful novel, that short story, the uh, lottery. Got a job on that, got a job on a Disney movie called the computer wore tennis shoes, got a job on this and that, started to do a lot of Disney movies. And this was kind of funny that I finally figured out why they were hiring me over at Disney. I did my first Disney movie called The Computer Wore Tennis Shoes. And I wore my glasses into the interview so I could see the script properly because I've worn glasses. And there are these kind of nerdy black glasses that I actually wear my real glasses that I'm wearing in a movie called Spinal Tap as I'm playing the drums. They look very talk geeky. about that. It's those glasses. <laughs> So I had those glasses and I wore them for the interview for the, for the Disney show, Computer Work. They went, great, you're hired for next Thursday. And oh, by the way, Ed, uh-huh, bring those glasses. <laughs> oh, okay. So then I got another call. Ed went, they want you to do another Disney movie, my agent said. It starts a week from Thursday. Yeah, and oh, Ed, bring the glasses. I kept I'm doing all these. Is he going to have the same glasses with him? They were hiring the glasses. They were not hiring me. You could have gotten anybody to wear those nerd glasses. They just couldn't find them somewhere out of the right optometrist from the 50s. You know, I just I wore, had the same glasses that I'd had when I was much, much younger. I just, you know, wore them. And uh, wow. I think they're hiring these spectacles and not this spectacle, me. <laughs> so, so you started studying, you started getting work. But it really wasn't until St. Elsewhere, right? That you, but wait, you were doing other things because weren't you a stand up comic to start out with? I did that for a while. Uh, I had a duo for a while at a park comedy partner? partner. Michael Richards and I went to college together. And so he's a brilliant physical comedian, the actor that played Kramer on Seinfeld, of course, brilliant actor. He and I worked together for a while. Then he went off and he got drafted in the army. So I went, I'm on my own, and I moved to Boulder, Colorado. I went, I'll try to do a solo act. And I started to 
write more material. Okay, wait, wait, wait. I'm, I'm stopping you again because I'm very no, curious okay. about this because that, I come from that and I was married to a stand-up comic. How, how did you, how did you start to craft an act? How did you, you and Michael, did you do improv or did you do stand-up? We did improv. We had no set material at all. We never did that important thing of actually writing material. We <laughs> thought we had invented improv. We literally had never heard of Viola Spolin, Second City, The Premise, the committee, all these brilliant improv groups. We don't knew nothing. We didn't know any of the rules of it. We violated the rules of improv every time we went up at the tubular. We, but you we guys Michael were really, successful at it though. We never got booked at the tubular, but we went up there on a Monday night and people laughed like crazy because we were both out of our minds and apparently funny. But uh, so then he goes in the army and I started to do it on my own. I started to write material. And that was because of the influence of the, the National Lampoon. I started to get the, the National Lampoon magazine and I was just addicted to it every month. It was so outrageous and edgy and funny, the National Lampoon, like the Harvard Lampoon done by the a lot of the same people who had worked there, Doug Kenny and Henry Nixon Beard and uh, you know all those guys who worked at the Harvard Lampoon, they went on over to, uh, you know, to do a, a commercial magazine, the National Lampoon with great success for years and did a lot of movies with John Hughes and other movies as well. But so, Ed, how did you craft an act? Did you did you study that, or did you just study how other people were doing? How because that's an art. How how did you do that? I started doing parodies of commercials. I started doing parodies of a, a rock musician, like a stoned out rock musician. I came out on stage with an IV in my arm and what have you, and I started playing my body because I didn't believe instruments were, you know, I thought they were part of the capitalistic pig society to actually manufacture this <laughs> instrument. You were part of the machine. So I would do that. I'd come out as an LAPD officer I, who came to this particular club this night to talk about the kids, talk to the kids about problems in the community with drugs. And they would boo, you know, and have the guy, we're going to have somebody come here to talk this evening from the LAPD. What? I paid money for Christ's sake. What's going on? And the people who would be boo the loudest would be the ones laughing the loudest. Three so this later. is like Andy Kaufman-esque sort of, right? Some of it was, and some yeah. was very typical, you know, like commercial parodies. Hi, now you can prepare a full Tom Turkey in the convenience of your toaster. Hop and gobble. A tasty snack for young and old alike, you know. The nutritional value of string as well as being a mild diuretic. Hop and gobble. And I would do these different commercials and things and TV parodies. And and you were really successful at it, though. I mean, you you were opening for Not major. really, but I, I was successful enough to be noticed by Don McLean, the singer-songwriter Don McLean, my friend of many years, who also had a manager named Herb Gard, who liked weird comedy. And so he wound up managing me. So I went around Bottom Line, The Troubadour, The Ice House, Max's Kansas City, uh, yeah. all these different clubs, The Exit Inn. Uh, but all didn't you even end up opening in huge venue? You opened for some. I did. Huge... I was an opening act for uh, Loggins and Messina, John Sebastian and Poco at Nassau Coliseum. <laughs> that's just that's just crazy. So how is it as a comic to open for these? How is the audience to you when they're waiting for Loggins and Messina? Are they are they kind? Are they? Are they Albert you? Brooks, my dear friend Albert Brooks, does the best version of it of anybody. But my experience was the same. After a little bit of him, just a few minutes of him doing his brilliant material, they should have gotten right away. They're there for a different reason. And so they right. started going, Richie, Richie. <laughs> Richie Havens was the main actor. Richie, Richie. 
So it's kind of like that. At some point I got poke, go, poke, go. But mine <laughs> was entirely my fault. Uh, Albert Brooks should have gotten the laugh. I didn't deserve any laughs because my punchlines, I was a prop comic. I had a lot of different props, a gas mask to give the weather report, different you know things, a big box for the pop and gobble commercial and all that stuff. But it was only like 16 by 20 size. So if you're at Nassau Coliseum, the first 10 rows love my ass. <laughs> First, those 200 people love me. The other 18, other 17,800 people, poke, go, poke, go. They couldn't see the friggin' joke. I'm a moron. I'm up there with an 18 by 20 picture. How are they going to see it past 11 rows? They're not. But then I had a, finally, I had, when I did bigger venues, I had a slide projector. Even at the bottom line, the two, I had a slide projector up in the sound booth, the lighting booth where the follow spot was. And I had my friend Tony Amatula with me and he would run the slides. I was, I had all these visual, you know, gags that now were represented by slides and what have you in the background. Oh my and lord! I, I was clearly out to make my life as complicated as possible. I had a dressing screen I put on stage, and I would change into different. I had a nun's habit that I'd come out in. I come out with the IV with the druggy musician. I had all the cop uniform. Out of my mind. Okay, so speaking of the the druggy culture we are part of a, of a community of recovering people. Ed, you you had some sort of addiction. I don't even know what your specific drug of choice was. Uh, you were very prolific in all of these things that you did from stand-up to, to, to acting. What, what, what was your drug of choice and did you ever do it while you were working? How, how were you successful while whilst being an addict alcoholic how did that how did that happen i um i was a practicing alcoholic for many years i certainly did pot alcoholically addictively i should say uh in the late 60s and got myself in dangerous situations with that a relatively benign drug if you will a pot but still i got myself in some dangerous situations with that uh, smoking a joint with Charlie Manson specifically. No, no you did not. Oh, come on. Did too. No, come did on. I memoir, no, writing my memoir. To... I've written That's... my memoir, actually. I've got oh, a publisher. You'll hear more about that soon. I'll be here I'm promoting so it. I'm so excited. I have to get women so right that, back up and going. I'll tell you Wait. all about it. You can't tell but us there even was a little that bit of Charlie I... Manson? Come on. Then I, uh, yeah. All I right, went don't. to visit a friend. Well, I'll tell you more about that at some point. But I then started after my dad passed away, it's very difficult for me. And But alcoholics will choose anything, good or bad, to celebrate or sure. to uh, bitch about. So I started drinking vodka. And I, I was drinking a quart of vodka every day and taking quaaludes and doing other, you know, taking cocaine with it. No, wait a minute. You're, you're, you're working, you're operating a vehicle, but also are you performing while all of this? I'm stuff? performing that way. I, would, I wouldn't drink a quart of vodka before I go on stage. Near the end, I would finally drink half a quart of vodka before I'd go on stage, and that was disastrous, of course. But I had these ironclad rules. No, I don't drink when I work, which, of course, went out the window, too, at right. a certain point. You know, I just had to show up on the set of this Jonathan Demi movie. They had reshoots, and I'd been in a real bender. It was a last-minute thing, and so I showed up there rip-roaring drunk. I was somehow was able to give them the one shot that they needed, but I'm sure people knew I was drunk, and it was... Did it no, ever cost you it? Did, did being loaded I'm ever sure cost it did. You? I'm sure people were scared to death of hiring me, not from seeing me act out on a set. There was very right. little of that, me being 
too drunk to work on the set. Very, very little of that, maybe not at all on the set. Right. But uh, certainly seeing me a ton is, you know, falling off the bar stool. I'm sure people, producers <laughs> were there, directors went, I was going to give this guy a call for an interview, but I'm not so sure right now. So, well, you certainly didn't lack for work, but what, 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 uh, what, what caused you to, why did you stop drinking it? I had the DTs for the first time in 1976. Then I, it took me, that was about five years of drinking a quarter of vodka a day and doing all that. And then I thought, well, I'm not going to do that again. I'll have a little wine with dinner. And then that took six months to have the DTs again, went again out, little wine with dinner. Then it took three months. Then finally, the last time when I almost died uh, at Cedar Sinai, it was two weeks from I'll have a little wine with dinner to a quart of vodka and some quaaludes and some cocaine and insanity and almost dying, almost didn't make it to Cedar. Cindy Williams, the actress Cindy Williams, got me to the hospital there uh, and at the emergency room at Cedars and they gave me some Epicac and you know they kept me alive and um, I'm here today. But uh, I, yeah, I was a, a very serious alcoholic and now I've got, uh, gosh, 1979. How many years is that? That's 30 Four. some odd years. But no, oh, wait, that's no, it's 43. 40, 42 years, 43 years. I got, <laughs> you know, I'm getting old. I can't remember how many years I'm sober. <laughs> so, and was getting sober, how, how did you do it? Did you go in treatment? How did you get sober? Well, there, there are support groups out there. I didn't go into like a rehab or anything right. like that, mm -hmm. but there's groups and groups that I'm aware of, they're anonymous. So if I were a member of that group, I wouldn't admit it now. In of a broadcast. course not. Nor would but, I. Uh, but there are groups that help people in many ways. There's Al-Anon, there's Alateen, there's AA, there's, uh, you know, NA, there's all kinds of ways that people can get help. Mm -hmm. And so did you ever, once you started, decided to get sober, did you backslide at all? Or did, when you stopped, you when stopped I first, and that was it? No, no. When I first went in, in 1976, it was my first meeting. I'd never been to a meeting. I'd been to meetings outside of meetings with my dad. I wonder why are they laughing in there? I thought this was a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. What is that about? And I went to this first meeting. When I'm hooked, I'm going to go. This is great. And uh, I just, I had everything going against me. By that I meant, I mean, I, I didn't, I hadn't really lost anything. I was still married to a wonderful woman. I had one kid uh, already and another on the way, you know, everything. I hadn't lost anything. This great guy, Billy Boyle, told me one day, he said, oh, you're never going to get sober. I said, what a terrible thing to say. Why would you say that to me? Because you you are never going to get sober. You haven't lost anything. I hear you working over at Universal and Battlestar Galactica. You're still married. You got a little place in Hancock Park that's nice, I hear. Kid on the way, another kid coming. You know, you'll never get sober. And that was the best thing I could have heard, actually. And he finally promised me. No, I promised him. He said, next time you're going to call me before you drink. And so I said, I do that. And I did, I was there at the at LAX. I was about to drink at the airport bar. And I went, Oh, that son of a bitch, Billy, Billy Boyle. I got to call him, Billy, I'm about to drink. I said, okay, where are you headed? Said, I'm going to Cuernavaca to work on the in-laws with Peter Falk and Alan Arkin. And I'm going to drink right now. Okay. Call me when you get there. Here, the weather's nice. Did, did you not hear me? You told me to call you. I'm calling. Yeah, no, you're going to be fine. Call me when you get there. So hold on a second. This is before cell phones, Vicky. Bartender, did I just order Bloody Mary? Yeah, you did. You're gonna drink it? Yes. You see, I'm gonna drink. I'm on a payphone talking to this guy. And he's, well, call me when you get there. 
I said, it's, I'm in, they're flying me first class. I'm going to drink on the plane too. He said, no, you're not, you moron. So why am I not going to drink? I'm going to drink it right now. He said, you're not going to drink. I said, why am I not going to drink? He said, because you called me. Aww. And I realized it was true. He said, if you wanted to take the drink, you would have drank the drink. If you, want, if you didn't want to come to your first meeting, if you wanted to, you went to that first meeting because you didn't want to drink. If you wanted to drink, you wouldn't have gone to that meeting at St. Augustine where I saw you. You don't want to drink. Call me when you get to Cornavaca. Bye. You know. And I didn't wow. drink. Wow. Wow. And you've taken this, this commitment you have to being of service to the world in that world as well. And I thank you personally for that, Ed. And thank I know you. there are what many people- that important way too. Many, how about many, guys like Billy Boyle who knew how to carry that message? Yes, and, car and, and carrying that message has been a life changer for so many people. And I'm so grateful for you in so many ways, for so many things that you, because, you know, I posted a thing that you were gonna be on the show and I have never, you know, I've interviewed a lot of people, a lot of our mutual friends, there is nobody more beloved than you, Ed. There might be people oh, as stop. beloved. There is nobody, everybody. I mean, and all Jim Beaver came on and talked about Adam Arkin say, you know, everybody just wanting me to give you their love and saying how much they adore you from people. I love that those have, guys, by the way. People that have just met you on the street to people that, you know, you've worked with. You are adored because you are somebody that walks the walk. You, you, it's an amazing thing. So I'm just stopping in the middle here because I'm getting a little verklempt and emotional, but you really are a power of example in everything that you do, from what you eat to how you live to what you're willing, to the lengths you're willing to go to. Haven't you like traveled to do like a keynote speak for this particular group? Like you've traveled great distances to do this, haven't you? Happy to do it. Happy, happy to do it. Well, it's an amazing thing. Okay, so you brought up the in-laws. So tell us about that because one of my favorite films of all time, I just mentioned Adam Ark and his wonderful father. Uh, do you have to, did you have to pinch yourself when you'd be on sets like that with Peter? And, I, and you do the best Peter Falk impersonation. Very kind. Now, let me ask you something important though. <laughs> yes. Uh, are we going to go past six o'clock? Uh, you can't, we won't if you can't. I, I'm sorry. I thought that I thought we we're going to go five to six. Well, we 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 will have you back if you have to go. We'll do a part two. Can, can you have me back another I, time, please? Yes. But yes. I want to. Can I tell talk a little bit about Peter Falk beforehand? Please do. Please. Well, first of all, Alan Arkin. Let's just start there. You know, I'd seen Wait Until Dark. I'd seen him in so many things. Uh, you know, brilliant actor. Just a huge fan of his, and I know his son Adam so well. A fan of Adams, and Love just to work with Alan Arkin is beyond description. He's just one of the great actors in my life. And I've worked with him a few times since. Peter Falk, ditto. I mean, I saw this show called The Price of Tomatoes. It was like a TV movie or something that he did with a woman who was in that show, The Nurses, I can't remember, but there's a wonderful TV movie they did called The Price of Tomatoes. And I thought, who is this guy? This guy is the most authentic person I've ever heard talk or move or do anything. And he's got this unusual, I just fell in love with Peter Falk as everybody did. You know, he, he did all these wonderful, wonderful movies and what have you. And, and then I'm now working with, now at this point he's done Columbo. I did a Columbo by the way first. Yes, so I met is. him on Columbo and he was very, very nice to me. And now I'm in Cuernavaca and that was part of the thing going there. I was like, 
trembling to work with Alan Arkin and with Peter Fox. So I was just, I needed a drink. Unfortunately, I didn't take one. I wouldn't have been, yes. been as good in the movie. And uh, I got to be friendly with Peter Falk and Shira Denise. They were not yet, I don't think they were married at that point. They were just dating at that point. And to be there at a table with Peter and just to have him looking over, you're just like staring at me for a while. It was Thanksgiving and he goes, can I say something? <laughs> this guy, this son of a bitch here, I don't know his friggin' name, I'll tell you that first of all. How the hell he got here? <laughs> happy Thanksgiving, Ed, Christ said, Jesus. <laughs> happy, happy Turkey Day. And I say turkey because you really have been in quite a few of them. <laughs> Suddenly, Peter Falk is like doing one lighters at me. And we had the same birthday as it turned out, September wow. 16th. We would regularly spend our birthday together. Oh. So I'm one of the luckiest men in the world. And, and I'm very lucky to talk to you. And I hope we can. I'm, Talk I'm, some more in the future. I, I am going to hit you up, Ed, and, and do a part two. And thank you so much for giving me your time, giving us your time, sharing your time with us. As always, you're so generous with it. And I adore you. I'm so glad you're healthy. And um, better call Saul. And what else are we looking for? The Young Sheldon. I got Young another Sheldon. season of that to do. A great show. Very funny show with a lot of heart. I love that. And I love you, Vicky. And it's so good to be here with you. I love you too, Ed. Thank you so much. See you soon. Bye -bye. See you very soon.